Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Yesterday, we were all worried about Italy. Today, everyone seems like they're doing just fine. Here to talk about what to look for in Italy uh, and whether the elevated risk continues is Luke Hickmore, Senior Investment Manager at Aberdeen Standard Investments, uh, based in Edinburgh, UK. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. So what do you make of this right now? I'm looking at the two-year Italian yield, which spiked the most ever yesterday, uh, is down sharply today. The nation was able to auction off debt in an orderly fashion. Is everything back to the way it was last week? No, not quite. I think the concerns are still very, very valid, Lisa. So the, the move in the two year is is eye watering. And, you know, we, we had, as you say, that biggest move yesterday and the second biggest move today as it went back the other direction. Um, but it's still a very weak economy. It's still unclear what government we're going to have what the makeup of that government is, and even when the elections will happen. So uh, a little bit less concern around today may just be short covering. Yeah. I think we're still quite elevated in terms of spreads over Germany at around 280, 285 basis points, and 3% for the 10-year yield, more than the US 10-year yield, um, which is a remarkable sticker price in, in, in Italy and shows you the concerns are still very much there. Um, and actually, the auction, as interesting as it was, they reduced the size of the 10-year to make sure they got it away. I see. So it was good. It was good to see. And they did the five-year was pretty strong. Um, but that 10-year, perhaps not as strong as it first looked. Yeah. So uh, you said in a story last week, you were quoted as saying that you would think of buying Italian bonds when they were 200 basis points higher in yield than German bonds of similar maturity. We're past that point by far. So have you been uh, going long Italy? No, no, I did think about it. <laughs> <laughs> you thought about it, reversed your position and decided not so much. <laughs> I, I, I think I think I'd said it was a sticker price that's worth revisiting, and and I think this two to three hundred area is the right level of risk for Italy, um, and it could be a very volatile spread from here on out, and it, it may be just just a reflection. I think that there was a great Bloomberg story this morning uh, over in Europe, by the way, looking at how this is the third volatility event this year, and perhaps we're looking at the wrong thing. It's a bigger systemic issue that the liquidity is being withdrawn around the world, in which case, you know, 300 might look attractive, but it could be 400 tomorrow, it could be 200 the next day, it could be back to 300 the day after. I think it's a very difficult contract to get involved with at the moment until you get a little bit more certainty around what's going on with the politics. And if I miss the first 30, 40 basis points, I think that's fine. Luke, uh, just to kind of reiterate Lisa's point, um, Previous to the election, Italy really didn't have a government. Uh, I believe the last popularly elected prime minister of Italy was Silvio Berlusconi. So it's not yep. as if they have had a popularly elected government for quite some time. So really, 
is it possible to put politics aside and focus just on the government's finances and say it doesn't matter who's in charge? This is the bill, and they still don't have a plan to pay it. Yeah, and they need to pass the budget by the autumn um, to be able to continue to pay for things. And let's let's look at some of those problems. The debt-GDP ratio is still 130%. Um, unemployment still 11%. Budget deficits improved by about a half, but it's still a negative 2.5% of GDP. These are not great numbers for any government to be coming in, but a technocratic one would probably keep it rolling along there. If we got movement five-star and Liga, all those numbers deteriorate as they try and put in place their fiscal stimulus and try and finance it. And yeah. that's the concern that we have. It's, it's looking as if they may do that. And, you know, even if it's July or it's September, you can't, I think you have to sit here and think they are the next people in power in Italy. So I guess um, just taking a step back, looking at what this flash crash or uh, flash spike in yields uh, means for the European bond market. Some people were saying that it was due to a lack of liquidity, that the European Central Bank has kind of sucked out so much of the volume from the market that a relatively small group of people are determining prices. Do you think that a lack of liquidity played into what happened yesterday? Almost certainly. Um, and it, it's, it's difficult, therefore, to think about what the right level is if it's been a liquidity-driven thing. But I, it looks a lot of that was at the front end in that two-year contract where we've seen the most of the volatility. In the 10-year space, as I said, I think in the late 200s reflects a lot of the risks that we're seeing in Italy that exist already economically um, and actually could be coming down the road. So, yes, liquidity is part of, part of the question, yeah. but fundamentals will reassert. And the fundamentals aren't strong. Yeah. What about with banks? Because there was a sell-off in banks, particularly Italian banks yesterday, and you're seeing a little bit of a recovery today, but really quite insignificant. I'm looking at Unicredit, for example. It's up a touch, but it really uh, had been falling pretty dramatically over the past uh, prior few days. Are you thinking that this could be an opportunity at this point? Yeah, I think if there's if there's anywhere I'd write like to go, it would be in banks, perhaps not directly in Italy. It may be actually through places like Spain, um, where good, strong domestic banks like Caixa Bank, one of our favorite names in the area, um, their AT1 is down five, six points over the last few days. I think that's down to really interesting levels again. And, and if if we get back involved, I think that's probably a place we do is, is go almost everywhere else but Italy, because you've still got the same uncertainty if you buy the banks in Italy as if you buy the sovereign. Um, but things like Spain are getting punished in, in credit land when they really shouldn't be. Uh, Luke, uh, I'm wondering if you could just uh, look a little bit uh, to the, to your south, but not so far south. Um, any thoughts on the Brexit negotiations that are and aren't happening? Oh, it's been a breath of fresh air that we've not talked about Brexit for three, four days. Yeah, right. See, I gave you that was an opener, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think the UK market's really been pretty much ignoring Brexit. Um, sterling credit's been underperforming a little bit, but it's not dramatic. Uh, it's so internationally focused anyway. It's one of the biggest markets that've got, you know, non-domestic issuers in it. Around 45% of the UK market is is not UK companies. Um, and actually, things like the FTSE is heavily dominated by uh, dollar-type companies like BP and, you know, Rio Tinto. So the, the, 
the impact on the UK has not been obvious from a capital markets perspective. You're starting to see it perhaps in the economics where uh, nervousness is coming out, people's expectations of growth are coming down. Um, and that's where the Bank of England's been flagging up as a concern. Right. And, and I think all it does, it just pushes out the interest rate story. We've got to leave it there, but thanks very much. Uh, Luke Hickmore, Senior Investment Manager, Aberdeen Standard Investments, joining us from Edinburgh, helping to manage more than $850 billion. Well, we want to visit now with Mike McDonough. He is the uh, chief economist for financial products at Bloomberg, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. And, you know, uh, Mike, I, I know we're going to talk about China, but just a little closer to home, if you don't mind. I'd like to start with what's going on with NAFTA, because I understand that there's well, there was a deadline, right? May 17th was it was one deadline. That kind of came and went. There's supposed to be another deadline. I believe it's Friday in which uh, the exemptions from sanctions from tariffs rather on steel and aluminum they disappear on on friday uh and then there's this mexican election which is coming up in july what is going on with nafta yeah well correct me if i'm wrong but there's been quite a few deadlines that have been postponed and i think that that is going to be the pattern that we're going to continue seeing i think that you know i'm I, Obviously, I don't know what's happening in the negotiations, but it sounds like there's some modest progress being made each time, but they're not anywhere near having some sort of holistic conclusion, some finalized deal that they could announce. So uh, I suspect they'll kick the can again and hopefully continue working towards a, a deal everyone could agree on. There's certainly been a lot of, uh, you know, I saw Trudeau uh, yeah. yesterday said he'd rather have a no deal than a bad deal, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, and he was speaking today as well. Uh, of course, uh a lot of people in the markets have been dismissing trade talks as all noise and even the increased rhetoric between the U.S. and China ahead of talks this weekend in, in Beijing didn't really seem to rattle markets that were more focused on Italy. And I'm just wondering, I mean, what do you make of the fact that ahead of this summit in China, President Trump seems to be sort of taking a much harder line and laying out details of tariffs to put on $50 billion of, of goods from China? Well, I don't think the market's been ignoring what's happening with these trade talks, right? The market is not performing this year like it was performing last year. Uh, and there's a number of reasons for that, be it rates going up, be it what's happening right now with Italy. But I think a lot of that is concerns over what's happening with trade. Uh, you know, I think what we're seeing right now is more of the same. Uh, we've been seeing, you know, I, I, last time I was on the show, I said, you know, in the end, I don't think we're going to see uh, what what's actually agreed and put on the table is going to be a shadow of what's being threatened. But I also said rhetoric would get worse before it gets better. Yes, although this does have a different feel to it. And the reason why is because it's yet another uh, sort of shift in who is pulling the strings behind the curtain, who is sort of making these decisions. And especially when you've got Senator Marco Rubio trying to take a harder line in Congress, it seems even the more confusing. You know, that, that was an interesting angle. But I think that what we're seeing right now is positioning ahead of this weekend's talks, right? I think that um, it's mostly noise. 
what we're hearing right now. Uh, I think, you know, my concern would be, I think, uh, you know, there's an advanced team in Beijing right now preparing for a meeting Wilbur Ross is going to be having there this weekend. If for some reason he doesn't end up going or that meeting gets canceled uh, for the next step of these negotiations, that would be that would be a bit of a red flag. But right now, what we're seeing, I don't think is is that alarming. I think it's just posturing ahead of these talks. Well, I understand that they're going to release a list of affected goods for the Chinese tariffs uh, June the 15th with some implementation at some point in the future. So, I mean, it's not as if they're going to do this tomorrow. Yeah, and that's after the weekend, right? So, you know, the, the, the odd thing that we've had happen was we had Steve Mnuchin come out and say the trade war is on hold. Uh, now we've had Peter Navarro come out and say, you know, we we I regret that he made those comments, and and then these threats of these new fifty billion in tariffs, which again I think you know it's it's hard to know who's in control of these negotiations from time to time. Well, and and just to just to throw this out there, I mean, there's been bipartisan concern, uh, and frankly, probably more support from Democrats than Republicans, uh, saying that perhaps President Trump will actually take too soft of a deal in his eagerness to try to get some resolution with North Korea. That is sort of one uh, sort of uh, narrative that's out there, that's being put out there by Congress saying, look, he wants a deal done with North Korea, so he is willing to perhaps give up a little bit more, and they want to ensure that that doesn't happen. Do you think that's 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 legitimate? No, I think that certainly the North Korea negotiations are are playing a role in how we're negotiating trade with China. I do agree that you could potentially have uh, that that type of risk is is real. Uh, but you know, at, at at the end of the day, I think that you most you know as you pointed out, both sides agree that there are uh, some unfair trade practices that China is uh, perpetrating. But what's interesting is you know a lot of our Western European developed market allies would agree with the same. Uh, you know, I, th- I think it's probably too late for this, but the best course of action would have been some sort of multilateral unified right. uh, confrontation with China rather than the U.S. going it alone and almost looking, uh, kind of looking like a bad guy in terms of protectionist, you know, the, the protectionist policies. So uh, it's too late for that, but hopefully maybe somehow we could move towards that direction. I think that would be better. I, th- I think we have a better likelihood of winning because instead of us just confronting China by ourselves, we're going in with all of its major trading partners and saying, hey, we believe X, Y, and Z is unfair. We'd like you to change this. And um, this becomes less of a, a concern for markets. Yeah, but real quick, that doesn't seem like that's going to happen, no. does it? No. <laughs> all right. Well, Mike McDonough <laughs> with out those there, though. words of optimism <laughs> and hope that are uh, that he quickly dashes us with. Uh, Mike McDonough, Chief Economist for Financial Products for Bloomberg LP. He has been prescient when it comes to everything from ZTE uh, to that r- the fact that rhetoric will probably get worse before it gets better. So definitely a voice that is very important to listen to. A sea change in the way that we look at data protection and data privacy occurred last week in Europe and frankly, uh, globally, and that is the implementation of Europe's GDPR. And to give us more of an insight into what this means, I want to bring in Scott Vernick. He's a partner at Fox Rothschild in Philadelphia. Scott, before we uh, dig in, just give us a brief overview of the GDPR and uh, how it has been going since its implementation, I believe, on Friday. 
Sure. So, uh, good morning. Friday was the first date, May 25th, that GDPR or the General Data Protection Regulation coming out of the European Union went into effect. Uh, it's been underway. Uh, for about two years, which was the lead time that the European Union and its member states uh, gave both companies in the European Union and companies in the United States uh, that have operations either directly in the European Union um, or do business with the European Union to get their house in order from a compliance uh, standpoint. And so uh, what we're told is, you know, roughly between, you know, somewhere between 16, 85% of American companies are at least somewhat compliant. Um, right. I'd say there's a smaller percentage of those that are fully compliant. So, uh, Scott, has it gone pretty seamlessly so far? Is it really, uh, you know, are we talking about full compliance here, or is this going to be a phased-in kind of approach? Well, what the law demands is that you were supposed to be fully compliant on May 25th. Um, and I think that there will probably be fewer companies that can claim uh, that they are fully compliant, although I'm sure that everybody tried to be fully compliant. Now, what we saw on May 25th, for example, is that a number of media companies uh, based in the U.S. went dark um, and did not enable uh, European residents or European uh, citizens to access their uh, news websites anymore. So this would be true of the Chicago Tribune, for example, and other media websites. Um, and that was largely because either they simply didn't want the headache of trying to become GDPR compliant or they didn't want to spend the money associated with it and they didn't want to risk potentially large fines uh, for companies that are not compliant. And other kinds of businesses as well um, that sell you know, consumer goods and other kinds of products simply went dark because, again, the cost of compliance seemed to outweigh uh, the amount of business they might be doing with those in the European Union accessing their websites. It's a bit of a Hobson's choice, though, right? Because, I mean, I've been receiving emails from a variety of sources in, Europe, in the European Union saying that if you want to continue to receive information or emails from them, that you've got to opt in and you click a box and say, I accept the new privacy rules and so on, and then you just stay on with the same list, right? I mean, it's not as if you're going to have to physically do anything other than accept what they've already told you to accept. That's right. I mean, from from the individual consumer's perspective, from someone living in the EU or one of its member states, it's really just a question of giving the service provider uh, a hard consent, meaning that you have to click a box as opposed to a default. And so that may seem relatively easy from the standpoint of an individual consumer, although if you're like most of us, you've been getting you know dozens of emails saying, hey, can you consent so that we can continue to give you access to our services? But yeah. from the standpoint of the company, particularly a company that does not have operations in the EU, the compliance obligations are fairly extensive and fairly expensive. I mean, I think that on average, for example, on average now, companies in the American companies have spent something like $16 million uh, to get compliant. Uh, Microsoft had something like 1,500 or 1,600 engineers working full-time to get it compliant. So, you know, you, those are 
examples at perhaps at, at one end of the spectrum or the other. But as you can see, a burden on a small business could be substantial. So one thing that I'm struck by, Scott, is the idea that people are going to get insight into just how valuable their data is and just how much of their data they have out there. And I'm wondering, you know, what the progress is on companies or services that allow individuals to sell access to their own data, basically profit from their own data rather than allowing a Facebook or a Google to profit uh, by, by selling their data to advertisers? Well, I mean, th- that's exactly right. I mean, so this is this is sort of what I would call the, you know, this is what I would call the, the data security or the privacy sort of paradox. I mean, in this country, essentially, the bargain is you give up your information in return, you get free products and services. Um, and the default has always been that the information doesn't really belong to you. It belongs to whomever you're doing business with, Facebook, Google, you know, you name it. Um, the default now in the in the in the European Union and elsewhere is really something different. And that is, it's really about consumer control over the information, meaning it's my information. And if you want to use it, you're going to have to tell me exactly how you're using it. Um, And you're going to have to get my consent for every which way you are using it. If I want to correct it, you're going to have to let me correct it. And if I want to take it with me, because I want to change telecom providers, you're going to have to let me do that. And so, you're right that the information then becomes much more valuable. And then, you know, if you want to do something else with it, perhaps you have to pay me for it. And if you understand the historical underpinnings, uh, particularly in the European Union, that is that uh, fear, if you will, over aggregating data on individuals uh, is understandable. Thanks very much for being with us. Scott Vernick is a partner at Fox Rothschild in Philadelphia talking about the uh, new changes to data security rules as a result of uh, European Union regulations and how uh, U.S. companies are and are not uh, complying, which uh, is increasing the cost but also is offering consumers uh, more protection over their uh, individual data. Well, we want to get some insight into what companies have been doing with excess cash, if indeed they have it, as a result of the tax overhaul plan that was uh, put into effect by the U.S. Congress and signed by President Donald Trump. And here to tell us more is Matt Townsend, our global business reporter for Bloomberg News. And you can follow Matt, as we all do, on Twitter at Matt underscore Townsend on Twitter. All right, Matt. Uh, what are companies doing? And I have a feeling that maybe there isn't just one answer. You're right. Um, I think the best way to think about this is obviously the tax cut, corporate tax cut, a lot more money flowing to companies now. And basically, we crunched the numbers on the first quarter for the S&P 500, basically all the companies that have reported so far. And the big takeaway is they have more money, they're spending more money, but in similar ways. So if you think about a pie, so the pie is getting bigger, but the, the proportions of each piece are the same. And the way that's played out is, you know, are buybacks at record highs? Yes. But as, if you look at them as a ratio of uh, the, the market cap of the S&P, it's basically the same as it has been. And on each thing we looked at, capital expenditures, cash holdings, um, dividends, buybacks, and then, you know, some wage gain data, it basically paints the same picture of, 
they're spending more on everything. Right. Well, I guess that then the question becomes, isn't this still a win? Because that would mean that they are spending more for hiring and, and compensation and they are, uh, you know, spending more are on research and development. So that's good. Yeah. I mean, it's a political football. So, you know, if you're the Republicans and you're the President Trump, I mean, you could say, yeah, you know, the tax cuts have spurred more spending on these things that we wanted them to. But the bottom line is corporate behavior in the S&P 500 hasn't changed. And that was one of the things that, you know, the Republicans pushed as, a, as what this might do is push companies to invest more in America, to open their pocketbooks in, in, in ways that they hadn't before and to shift resources towards yeah. things that, you know, are supposed to help American workers. And we're not seeing that. They're spending more on everything. And it's not some sort of big shift. And granted, this is only the first quarter. Right. And it takes a while for companies to sort of react to such a thing. So, Well, but, but this is an important point. In other words, people uh, were arguing that companies were holding back some of their investments because tax policies weren't beneficial to them. Now that they've changed, they're not necessarily allocating a greater proportion of their money to those projects uh, that were sort of one of the things that w- was discussed. I, I, just have yeah. to, I just have to ask, though, you know, is there a time limit for which we can judge this? Because there was some kind of benefit to investing in your operations earlier, correct? Mm-hmm. After this tax law uh, was passed. Right. Um, the easy, it was not an easy answer to that, but it could take a while to really look back and say this had this profound effect or didn't have an effect. Um, but, you know, even the, you know, the Chamber of Commerce has basically come out and said in one of their pieces recently, we may never know if these tax cuts actually worked because it, there's so many variables and with the economy and where, where the, the economic cycle is. Um, so it's not a great answer to your question, but, you know, it, it, it could take a while. You know, the, the early read, though, is though nothing has changed. Matt, uh, on a slight, well, it is on this topic, but it, it kind of takes it from a different perspective because before, uh, just offline, we were talking about the previous reporting yes. that had been done by a variety of, of news agencies, yes. news organizations yeah. about this. Right. While you may not be able to really tell whether the tax reform worked, in quotes, right. You are able to tell a little bit about the perspective of the news organizations that have been reporting this, right? Because, you know, you've kind of set it out. You said they're doing more of exactly the same thing they've all they've been doing, but that's not the way it's been painted, has is it? Right. I mean, you are buybacks at an all time high, yes, but so is almost everything else. So if you wanted to look at buybacks and say. Uh, the tax cuts aren't working. Co- companies are just spending on buybacks, which was, you know, the sort of democratic talking points. Some news news organizations have jumped on that sort of train, uh, you know, thought. Um, you could, and if you just wanted to write b- about buybacks, you could. But you know, here at Bloomberg, we focus a lot on how you actually analyze data, and you know, any big number sounds big, but if you look at the ratio, which we're looking at, trailing twelve month cash flows, which basically is the amount of money companies would have generated in cash over the previous year, the ratio of buybacks to cash flow is, is not an outlier. It went up a little bit in the first quarter, but it's basically in line with the average over the past five years. That ratio was much higher during the Obama years in some quarters. So, And then other uh, news organizations have jumped on the capital expenditures. Yes, they're up. Uh, you know, A lot of people expected CapEx to be up anyway this year because of where we are in the economic cycle. Um, but if you look again at, at a ratio of CapEx versus ca- 
cash flow, it's not a big outlier. It's, it's basically in line with previous quarters and previous years. Really interesting. Thank you so much uh, for writing the story and for bringing it to us. Matt Townsend is a global business reporter for Bloomberg News. I recommend you read the story. Uh, the title, Handed $30 Billion Corporate America is Splurging on Everything. Um, and definitely an insightful look at the big picture and not just the slice that you want to focus on. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.